This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Acts 4, 32-37 All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time... Those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. out here to see if Julie Stingley's here this morning. Is she here this morning? Not yet? Okay. Jean and Laura, would you guys come on up? For those of you that may not be aware, this is Jean and Laura's last Sunday with us. Uh, They are going to be relocating, and uh, although you will be a distance away, you will not be far from our hearts Uh, I've come to know the two of you through your service to this church, especially the wonderful meals that you have helped prepare and that we've all taken um, advantage of and enjoyed. And you've done so many more things that I'm not even aware of since I've been here such a short time. But would you like to tell us a little bit about where you're going? Um, Jean and I have decided that it is time for us to retire, really retire, and move back to a warmer climate, Michigan. So we're going back to reconnect with our children and our grandchildren and do some traveling. We're going to try to see Iceland and New Zealand and Nicaragua. We're just going to do world traveling. Um, But we're really going to miss this church. You, You folks have really made us feel welcome. We were looking for a church home when we came here, and we found one, and and we just um, thank you for all the support that you've given us and, and all the love that you've shown us. And, uh, Jean, what is it that you are going to, what are you going to, what is it you're going to miss the most? The, congrega- the congregation here mm-hmm. and uh, all the, the people that love us and, and we love them. But I, one nice thing about <clears throat> this new move is we're downsizing so we can be more mobile. And... We'd like to pass something on to you. We know how much you're enjoying your new life up here. We saw your picture in the paper at the Fur Rondi and the really? of the reindeer. Yeah. Yes. It was in, it was in yes. the paper. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> the secret's out. Yes, I did run with the reindeer. The Santa Claus. And I was dressed as Santa Claus, yes. I. Well, this is for you to carry on your uh, your new life here. And oh, Would you like me to open it? Yes. Yeah, it's a mystery box. It's a mystery box. Oh, my. Look at this. Wow. Are you kidding me? Oh, 
Which way does it go on? Oh, that's the tail. Oh, there we go. And is this a fox? It's a crystal fox. It's a crystal fox. It's a crystal fox. Oh, thank you so very... Wow! I really am in Alaska. Oh, thank you. Well, let's let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Laura and Jean. Lord, we thank you for just their faithful service and their presence in our community here at Community Covenant. Lord, we ask your blessing upon them as they move into this new season of life. Lord, would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them for the move? And Lord, prepare their hearts for a new place of service, for new relationships. God, we send them out today as missionaries, thanking you for the time that they've been here, thanking you for the blessings we receive. And Lord, we ask that in their new new experience, their new journey, that you would bless them richly. We pray this now, we ask this, and we commit them to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so very much. I'll take the mystery box here. This is wonderful. Thank you so very, very much. Wow. I didn't know that was in the paper. Wow, it's a small community after all, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is It is true that uh, we ran with a reindeer again, just trying to have that Alaska experience. And uh, we're getting more and more of it. Uh, and next year, I'll have the, the fox hat to wear. So that'll be good. I want to talk to you this morning about the shared life. We're in a portion of Scripture. Uh, we've been through the first, second, third chapter of Acts and then into chapter 4. And of course, we might remember the last two weeks, Peter and John, they're giving the evangelistic message of the gospel. Thousands of people... And when you say thousands of people, that's also representative of families. Whole families are coming uh, to faith in Jesus. And then there, there's a challenge. There's some opposition. Uh, the religious leaders are uh, greatly disturbed and uneasy at what's happening. They're seeing what's going on through the apostles as a threat to power. Uh, even as Jesus threatened their power and authority, so now the followers of Jesus are doing the same. And of course, they thought they were done with Jesus. And now here are Peter and John and the other followers, and they are moving out into their community, and they're proclaiming Christ. There are great and mighty miracles that are taking place. And when they're challenged as to by what authority and whose name these things are being done, of course, it's in the name of Jesus. And that stirs things up. And so last week, after uh, Peter and John were released, they were told not to preach again uh, in the name of Jesus. Essentially, uh, the name of Jesus uh, was outlawed. And yet the believers came together and they prayed. And what did they ask for? They asked God to give them boldness and courage to continue to proclaim Jesus' name. And they also asked that God would work through them powerfully, uh, that there would be uh, demonstrations of God's power uh, that would call attention to the reality that, that Jesus is Lord of all. And so that's what was going on last week. And this week, we get a picture 
of what that first community of the followers of Jesus looked like. And we call that the shared life because it really is a shared life. And there's some very interesting and distinctive things that we're going to point out here in Scripture. But I want to begin by telling you a story. Many of you know I was in law enforcement. Uh, I wore a uniform long before a Santa suit. And um, I remember as being a, a young sheriff's deputy in L.A. County and going on patrol for the first time. I had a, a field training officer. And I remember one of the first calls that uh, I ever received was a call to a residence where there had been a robbery. Now, when we arrived to this home, we were greeted in the front yard. It was just dark. Greeted in the front yard by an elderly couple, a husband and wife. And they were very upset. What had happened is they'd gone shopping, gone to the bank and then gone shopping. And they were unloading groceries out of their car. And um, the wife had the driver's side door open, and she was reaching in to pick up a bag of groceries when someone came from behind her, pushed her down in the car, and ripped her purse from her arm, got into a waiting car that was parked out front of the house, and the car drove off. So when we got there, of course, they were very upset. And I remember very distinctly what she said. She said, They took God's money. That was God's money. It was, it was for the church. People need the church and, and that money was for God and it was for His work in the church. They took God's money. And, and it wasn't her money. She wasn't upset uh, by what had happened. It was in her mind the fact that somebody had taken God's money. Well, the story was they had gone to the bank and to the store and she had withdrawn a, a large sum of money that she was going to give to the church, her church, that weekend. And so she was very, very upset uh, over what had happened. We went into her house. It was a very modest house. There was a, a big organ sitting in the corner of the front room. And she was the church organist in a small local community church where she had served for decades in the music ministry of the church. But I'll never forget that. There were three things that, that really stood out to me. Number one, uh, she recognized that all she had belonged to the Lord, even the money that was taken. That was God's money. It wasn't her money. The second thing I'll remember is that her concern for the community. She was giving what God had entrusted to her to the community of faith to be used in the name of Jesus. And so she, she had a commitment to God and she had a, a sense of belonging and priority of the faith community that she was a part of. And of course, the third thing, which was really astonishing, uh, when she was, when I was filling out the report and she was telling me, this is God's money, it's God's money. I said, you know, don't, don't worry about that. I, I think God will, will deal with the situation. And she goes, oh, oh no, deputy, you, you mustn't think that way. We have to pray for these people. And so, of course, I'm thinking, well, vengeance is the Lord's. And uh, she's thinking, what an opportunity to pray for somebody who desperately needs to know Jesus. And so her three priorities in life were God, her faith community, and she had a sense of priority and calling for those in the world and her community at large, in this case, the perpetrators of the crime, who didn't know Jesus. 
What an amazing heart of faith. Would you agree with that? All these years later, I remember her. And she stands out to me as a real model of somebody who really exemplifies what we're reading in Scripture today, what we call the shared life. Now, there's a Presbyterian pastor. His name is Mark Laberton. And he wrote a book some years ago called Dangerous Acts of Worship. Dangerous Acts of Worship. And in his book, he talks about how our whole lives are an act of worship. And this is a quote I want to share with you from his book. He said, We should not fool ourselves into the thinking that it is enough to feel drawn to the heart of God without our lives showing the heart of God. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that it is enough to feel drawn to the heart of God without our lives showing the heart of God. And, and certainly this woman that I share with you this morning is an example of one who is not only drawn to the heart of God, but whose life literally in a, in a really difficult time showed the heart of God. Jesus shined through. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any comfort sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Now listen to this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. As we look into our passage this morning in Acts 4, starting in verse 32, you'll notice it says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. One heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything that they had. Their attitude was this. Everything we have is a gift from God. To be used by God to accomplish God's purposes in the world. Quite frankly, they weren't focused on themselves. They were focused on God and His work. And they saw their own lives and they saw their possessions as a resource through which that work was accomplished. Living out uh, what Paul writes about. Have this attitude in you that is also in Christ Jesus. It's interesting when we, we look at that example that we read about here in Acts this morning and we juxtapose that to four contemporary images of the church. Four contemporary images of the church, of the faith community today, that I think differ from what we're reading about this morning in the book of Acts. And these four contemporary images, although they express perhaps an aspect of the church, uh, solely, uh, solely themselves really reflect a distorted image, an incomplete image of the church. So let's look at the first one, the first contemporary image of the church. Uh, the church as a gas station. The church as a gas station. For some people today, the church is a place where you fill up your spiritual gas tank when you're running low. You get a, a good sermon, and it'll keep you going for the week. It's, it's a gas station. Uh, I remember um, a church where I served. 
I had a couple come up to me and said, Pastor Todd, I'm tired of, of the challenge in your, your message. Each week you're challenging us to go out in the world and to live for Christ. Each week you're, you're challenging us to live sacrificially for one another in a community of faith. Frankly, Pastor Todd, I have enough challenges during the week. I want to come to church, sit down, hear a good sermon, feel good about myself, and go out into the world until next week when I come back. True story. They saw the church as a gas station. Uh, The second image is the church as a movie theater. For many people, the church is a place that offers entertainment. Uh, Go for an hour of escape, hopefully sit in, in comfortable seats, Understand that years ago the seats weren't as comfortable as they are today. You might remember that. Leave your problems at the door and come out smiling and feeling better than you went in. Isn't that wonderful? The the church as a movie theater. About entertainment. About feeling good. Leaving better than when you came in. Unless, of course, the Holy Spirit wants to convict you of something. The Holy Spirit wants to challenge you the Holy Spirit calls you to an area of repentance in your life, then I think the church as a movie theater, a place of entertainment, isn't really a correct image of the church. The third image is the church as a drugstore. For other people, the church is a place where you can fill the prescription that will deal with your pain. The church is therapeutic. Now, there's truth in that. We want to come to this place. We want to meet Jesus at our point of deepest need. We want to be honest and vulnerable and authentic about our hurt and our pain. And Jesus is going to minister to us. And we're a part of a faith community where there's healing and there's wholeness. But the church is more than a drugstore. You come as you are, but you leave a transformed and changed person. And so if the church is seen as a gas station, a movie theater, or just a drugstore, it's an incomplete image of the church. It's a, a distorted image of the church. And then finally, the fourth image is the church is a big box retailer. Mm. The Walmart church. Other people see the church as a place that offers the best products in a clean, safe environment for you and your family. It's a sanitized place. The church offers great service at a low price. All in one stop. Hmm. For many people, the church is a producer of programs for children and young people. That's the image of the church as a, a big box retailer. Again, another encounter I had with a, with a woman in a, in a former church where I pastored. She said, Pastor Todd, I want you to know I'm leaving the church. Of course, whenever a pastor hears that, he kind of stands up and says, Really? Well, why are you leaving the church? Well, I know there's an emphasis in this church on service. And frankly, I come to church in the morning and I don't want to be served. I don't want any demands. I don't want to feel like I should be doing something that I'm not doing. Well, then what are you looking for? I asked. And she said, well, Pastor Todd, I want to go to a church where I can show up in the morning, drop my children off in the children's ministry, grab a a latte or espresso drink, sit up in the balcony and have nothing expected of me. That's the church I'm looking for. Four images of the church. 
But these images are quite different than the image we get of the church in our passage this morning. The good Dr. Luke, the church historian, uh, he presents the church as a passionate community, a passionate community of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. There is a unity of love and a hope that's expressed through a commitment to these shared passions. There's three of them. And all three of them we see in the life of the lady that I started with the illustration this morning, uh, the woman who had her purse taken. Number one is a commitment to Christ. We see in this passage this morning that they're in one mind and one spirit. They're unified out of a common passion, a commitment to Christ. The love of Christ compelled them to live in community together, but to live for something greater than themselves. It was a community of shared life. It was a community of shared possessions. It was a community of serving one another. The second commitment was that commitment to community. The commitment to Christ led them to a commitment to the community of faith. They had a commitment to one another. It was more than a community where someone would come in, hear a good sermon and leave. Someone come in, feel badly, feel better about themselves and leave. Somebody come in, grab a latte, drop their kids off at the children's ministry, come in, feel good, and leave. It was so much more than that. It was a community of self-sacrifice. It was a community of giving their lives away one to another. It was a community of supporting each other as they moved out into their world in Jesus' name to make a difference as a family on mission together to declare to all people in all places the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ. They had a commitment to Christ. They had a commitment to their community. Finally, they had a commitment to the cause. A commitment to the cause. As we look here in the passage, and it says that all the believers were in one heart and one mind, and no one claimed to, to share their possessions uh, that were their own. They didn't look at it as being their own. They shared everything they had. Then it goes on to say, verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. None. Now what was going on here? You remember at the, at the Feast of Pentecost, pilgrims would come from all over the different regions. And when they came, they heard the message of the gospel at Pentecost, and, and many of them came to faith. Well, what did they do? They became a part of that first faith community. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, they're, they're sitting there breaking bread together. They're, they're sitting at the apostles' feet. They're learning about Jesus. And there's this, this faith community that's developing. Well, what about the people that came from uh, regions that were agricultural? And they came as pilgrims, but stayed as Christians, as followers of Jesus. What happened to them? How do they make a living? Well, that's what you see going on here. Those who had means gave away those means, and in some cases, like Barnabas here, sold a piece of property to support those that were in the church, to support those who had come at a distance for Pentecost, came to faith in Jesus. Now they're staying as a part of the community of faith, and they have no source of income or way uh, of earning in an urban Jerusalem a living. And so people are, are, are giving 
as needed as the Lord leads them to support that community and to support the work of the gospel. That's going, that's what's going on here. But it says that while this is going on, the apostles have great favor. They have great favor. And you know what? When, when the community of faith is functioning the way God intends it to, when we are living with a, a total commitment to Christ, a commitment to community, and a, and a commitment to the cause, to the message of the gospel, to taking that into our world, when we are doing that, you know that it's attractive to other people. They look at us and say, what's different about us? Why do you live in, in such a way that, that you would sacrifice and, and, and live for something greater than yourself? Whether it be for your commitment to Christ, whether it be to your commitment to community, or it be to your commitment to the cause. Why do you do that? In fact, what that really is, is, is what's called living a questionable life. Uh, do you remember in, in 1 Peter three fifteen and 16, where Peter says that you should always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you? Well, that implies two things. Number one, you're out living in the world where people can see you. And you're living with people in and amongst people that aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. But number two, you're living in such a way that your life is called into question, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. What we're talking about here is living a questionable life. In the best sense of the term. To live a questionable life is to live in the world in such a way that people sit up, take notice, and want to know about the hope that lies within you. Now, some of you may be familiar with a man named Julian the Apostate. He was the last emperor, uh, non-Christian emperor of Rome. And he ruled in around 360 A.D. or so. And he made it his mission to dismantle the strides that Christianity had made in the Roman Empire. And here was his strategy. He was so upset by the way he saw Christians lived. He, he observed that Christians not only took care of their own, that there were no needy people among the Christian church, but that they also took care of people in the community that were not their own. In fact, he wrote a letter to another leader in the empire. And he issued an edict, and the edict is in the letter. And he says, this is what I want through the whole empire from this time going forward. All the leaders are to enforce this. I want all the leaders to live the way Christians live. Now you think, well, wait a minute. How does that help dismantle Christianity? Well, his thinking was this. If people all live the way Christians lived, then Christianity would no longer be questionable. You see? And so he writes in this letter... The Christians, they take other people's dead and they bury the dead. The Christians take homeless people that aren't a part of their family into their homes and care for them. The Christians care for the poor and the needy and the sick. I'm issuing a decree that throughout the empire, all subjects of the empire and all leaders of the empire are to encourage people to live like Christians. But his plan failed miserably. Do you know why? You can't live like a Christian unless Christ lives in you. You see, what he was seeing was the reality of the risen Christ alive in the followers of Jesus. And they were living in such a way to call into question their actions. They were, in the best sense 
of the Word living questionable lives. They were willing to give themselves away. They were willing to give their material possessions away for the sake of the Gospel, for the sake of the message, of living the message of Jesus Christ in the world. And it was a powerful message. They weren't attached to the things that they owned. They wanted to use them for the Lord's work. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you can't serve money. But money can serve God if it's used for God for His purposes. You know, one of the things I found here early on as Lori and I came to Community Covenant is you are a giving congregation. We were recipients of your generosity. And as we continue to be a missional community, a family on mission together, it's that generosity that others are going to see. They're going to call into question our lives as we live questionable lives. You want to live a questionable life? Then, then don't let money own you. You use money for God's purposes. And you watch why people look and say, what are they do? why are they doing that? Why are they so generous with their time, their treasure, and their talent? People question that because that's not the way of the world. You see, you and I have a choice. We can live lives of scarcity or we can live lives of abundance. What we see here in our passage today is a commitment and a belief that God wants to bless those who live lives of abundance. Now, you're all familiar with the story of how to catch a monkey. You know that story? You don't know that story? You never tried to catch a monkey? Well, here's how the story goes. You get a container with an opening large enough for the monkey to put its hand in. And you put something in the container that the monkey would desire. A peanut, a piece of fruit, something that monkeys like to eat. Now the monkey will find its way to the container, will put its hand in, and it will grab onto that object. But then guess what happens? It tries to remove its hand, but it can't get its hand out. Because it could get its hand in while it was open, but the fist grabbing onto that object keeps it from being able to remove itself from the box. And that's how the monkey is captured. Do you see the illustration? We can live lives of scarcity like the monkey. We can grab onto our possessions and material things in the world. We can keep our gifts, our treasures, our talents, all those things. We can latch onto them and hold onto them as if they're our own and refuse to let go of them. But you know what happens when we do that? We become trapped. We become the prisoner. We're the one that's captured by the thing we're trying to hold on to. So that's living a life of scarcity. A life of scarcity is living with your fists closed. Holding on to everything you got because it's yours. You've earned it. And you can do what you want with it. Or you can live a life of abundance. A life of abundance is to live a life with your hands open, with your palms up towards God. Everything you have is His. It belongs to Him. It flows to you and through you for His purpose. And when you live a life of abundance, you're living with palms up, hands open. Here's the point. God can't fill clenched fists. 
God can fill open hands. And so here's the question. Are we going to live lives of scarcity or lives of abundance? Are we going to live like monkeys captured by the thing that we're trying to hold on to? Or are we going to live lives as fully devoted followers of Jesus, recognizing that all we have belongs to Him and can be used for His purpose? 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. Paul writes, Remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It feels good to give. It feels good. You're blessed more than you bless. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Why? Because you live with palms and hands that are open. God fills open hands. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Wow. You know, I think these first followers of Jesus that we're reading about this morning in Acts chapter 4, they got that. They understood that. That's why they were able to live so freely with their possessions. God owned it. They didn't. It was for His purposes. It's interesting, after this passage, as we move into Acts chapter 5, we begin to see a community of faith that now is going to face challenges internally and externally. But the point is this. It's their unity. It's their love for one another. It's their commitment to Christ, commitment to community, and commitment to cause that will allow them to be victorious in spite of those challenges. One of the great confessions of faith comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563. And the Catechism has a series of questions that that are asked and then a response. And question number one is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Let me read to you the response to that question. My only comfort in life and death is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of His own blood has fully paid for all my sins, has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that He protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit His purpose for my salvation. Therefore, By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. God is calling you and me to a shared life, a shared commitment to Christ, a shared commitment to community, and a shared commitment to cause. That's what the shared life is all about. So worship team comes forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It's an invitation to live with a commitment to Christ, a commitment to community, and a commitment to cause, but it's also a challenge to live with palms that are open, 
that you can fill and bless so that we can bless others. Father, would you help us at Community Covenant to to enter into that shared life, not to grasp and live lives of scarcity, but, Lord, to let go and live lives of abundance. And in that way, Lord, you allow us to live for something greater than ourselves, indeed, to live for Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.